It's now our privilege to hear God speak his word through the uh, Apostle Paul, first from Philippians 4th chapter, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And now from Romans, the 8th chapter, the 28th verse. And we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, be with me, a sinner, as I uh, preach your word uh, to a group of sinners. And uh, may we just uh, surrender to you and be willing to make the changes in our lives that we need to make. And pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, I said uh, that we were at winter camp last week. Uh, Beth and Avery uh, were gracious enough to join. And uh, I figured I'd just share a quick story because we're talking, we're going to be talking about the foolishness of mockers. And uh, so they have this polar plunge if you don't know what that is, it's basically they just cut out a little hole in the, the lake and you jump in for some unknown reason. I don't know. <laughs> I do not understand it and therefore I do not partake in it. It makes no sense to me. Uh, but of course, I still had the you know position of power here, I guess, and so I'm standing there watching. Beth and Avery were brave enough to do this together. So, you know, these Texans, right, running into this freezing <laughs> cold lake <laughs> was a funny image. But I, you know, I noticed Beth didn't go all the way under. So, of course, I helpfully mocked her to make sure that she did. And, and then she ended up doing it. Uh, so, you know, kudos to them. They're, that was very impressive. I, I, was very, I was very impressed. So, uh, yeah, anyways, we'll, we'll get to the foolishness of me later. But uh, so my wife and I, we, we enjoy comedy quite a bit. And so uh, one of the interesting things about comedy is that there's really not any one style. You know, if you've ever seen different comedians, you know, they can be totally different. And yet, you know, of course, they all make you laugh, but they do that in very different ways. And so one of my favorite styles of comedy is satire, uh, especially the kind uh, that's insightful. Uh, and so I've recently come across a comedian who kind of started her own style. Not, I mean, satire is not new, obviously, but she was one of the first people to kind of make a name for themselves on YouTube. Uh, and did it through comedy. And so uh, basically she noticed all the people in the early days of YouTube especially who were trying to get YouTube famous, and, you know, they'd post these videos of them singing or doing some sort of performance art or something, you know, and they wouldn't be very good at it, but of course, you know, they think they're good at it. And so, uh, you know, most of these people, right, at best they're, they're very average. But uh, so this, this woman, Colleen Bollinger, she had this idea to create an online persona mimicking these people who didn't really have the talent but who think that they're god's gift to the world uh and so she you know if you've ever watched a miranda sings video um you know you'll quickly be struck by just how dumb it is <laughs> she is not talented she is not good at this uh but colleen through her character miranda is just being a ridiculous version of everyone else that's out there and uh, so one of my favorite things about the character is that people would leave comments on how bad she's saying or whatever, right? They don't really realize that she's a character doing a bit. Uh, and so some of her videos, she actually goes and she'll read these comments and just react to them and, you know, basically ignore just how right they are that she's not a good singer. Uh, but, you know, 
she'll, she'll just say, you know, ah, they don't know what they're talking about, right? Uh, she takes any negative criticism that she receives, and she's like, well, no, they're just jealous of me, right, of how good I can sing or how good I can act. And so uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's a weird sort of comedy because you watch it, and you're, like, frustrated with her for not understanding. No, they, they're right. You know, you are bad at this, but also, of course, it's a character. I don't know. It's a weirdly inspiring thing about not letting haters get to you. And so that's my long way to introduce today's passage. Nehemiah has a similar message for us when the going gets rough. But first, let's recap uh, what Pastor Nick has been going through the last few weeks here in Nehemiah. Uh, so for the past few weeks, we've been going through uh, this book. The Jews, they'd been kicked out of their homes right in the promised land by their enemies. They had been away for generations. But now Nehemiah feels like the Lord is calling him. That this is the time to go back. Uh, the problem is there are cities, you know, in shambles, basically. And so they need to go back and they need to rebuild it. And so, uh, as we saw, he prayed to God that the Lord would provide a way to rebuild. And then he went and investigated the walls in preparation for that work. Uh, we're jumping ahead a bit to chapter 4 today, but I do want to just pause really quick and glance at chapter 3. If you're, if you're in the Word, you can just kind of, kind of glance through that, that chapter. But specifically, I want us to see how many people were involved in beginning this work. Uh, and I, I think there's an important practical note to observe there, that uh, the men involved in that had physical gifts, but they were being used spiritually. Uh, and I think sometimes in the church we emphasize uh, maybe the spiritual gifts a little too much, uh, what we would call spiritual gifts, um, more than physical gifts. You know, we emphasize the gifts that make a good pastor, not necessarily ones that make a good carpenter, right? Uh, and I think that that's... That's bad. We, sh we shouldn't be doing that because everyone's gifts can be used spiritually. And, of course, these people were doing that. And so, uh, you know, the maintenance of God's house is not a trifling matter. And so I do want to take just a moment. If you've served on buildings and grounds uh, or are currently serving, can I just have you stand really quick? And I just want us to uh, acknowledge these people. There's more. Come on, stand up. Thank you. Uh, there's more of you. There's more of you. But, no. They do a lot of things here uh, that go unnoticed, and uh, I just want to say, uh, again, we, we recognize their physical gifts, but they're being used spiritually. This is good for the church, uh, the fact that we have lights that work, uh, the fact that we have heat. All these things are monitored by the buildings and grounds to make sure that everything is up and running, uh, and so uh, I'm appreciative of them. But we should also go out of our way to acknowledge all the different ways, not just buildings and grounds, but all the different ways that people are using their gifts uh, for the church. So join me now, then, uh, if you will, in reading uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mountains of rubble? Then Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they were building, he would break down their stone wall. Discouragement. It's a powerful tool in the hands of our enemies. It's not a new tactic used by people today, right? Uh, as we're seeing, it's used uh, thousands of years ago. Uh, but bullying is certainly one of the major issues facing teens today, certainly. 
And of course, it has evolved too with the internet, right? People, I feel like, have gotten a little more vicious because there's not that direct face-to-face uh, uh, -face contact, but there's also not as much accountability, right? I can just say something on the internet and I don't have to, you know, nobody's gonna call me out on that. So uh, one of the old obstacles to say something mean, right, was that you did have to say it directly in front of them. But now people just leave nasty comments on Facebook and they can log off and not think another thing of it. And the people that's reading it, right, they're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> their whole week is ruined. And so uh, it's devastating. So in our scripture for today, Nehemiah, right, he's undertaking this huge task, this huge work. But you have some people who aren't happy about it, right? Samballot and uh, Tobiah are opposed to this work. We aren't told exactly why, and there are kind of some different theories out there. But what we know for sure is that they're not fans of the Israelites for one reason or another. Uh, and we're going to take a careful look at the tactics uh, that these guys use, identifying the ways in which Satan uses them to obstruct the work of the Lord. Uh, but then we're going to look at how God's people should respond. So uh, bear with me, because the first half of this will sound more like a TED Talk than a sermon. But we're, we're getting there. <laughs> so, uh, so first, looking at Simbalat. We notice he grows angry, right? He sees Nehemiah working. There's some progress being made. He grows angry. But why? It's because he feels threatened in some way. The Israelites, they're undertaking this massive task and banding together, and they've got the Lord's hand in it, driving the charge. If you're an enemy of Israel, that's a scary look, you know? So he looks at them, and he feels threatened by them. Anger is an important emotion for us to note. Uh, because unless it's a reaction to injustice, I think that it's usually a really strong indicator of an idol uh, in someone's life. And so maybe you notice yourself getting angry at things. Uh, and again, you have to ask yourself, is this because there is an injustice or am I holding on too tightly to something uh, that I need to really just give to God? Uh, we're angry when we don't get our way and we feel we should. Or when we feel like we're about to lose something precious to us. The parent that gets mad at the kids for being loud at the grocery store might indicate a sense of image control that the parent values, right, but is not getting. Uh, the raise that got denied and we get angry because we feel owed that money or whatever, right? In this case, Sembala is upset because Israel, his enemy, is growing powerful. And that likely means his current advantage over them might be coming to an end. When you've come across someone getting angry or frustrated, it isn't obvious that you've wronged them in some way. I think it can be helpful, actually, to ask yourself what the person might feel like they are losing. And you might now understand their motives a little bit better. Doesn't necessarily change things, but, but you might understand the enemy better. And in this case, we look at Sambalat, and the idolatry is so deep, we can see it will mean trouble for Nehemiah. This guy is not going to be reasoned with. Uh, he's not going to go away easily. They're going to fight for that idol, for control, hopefully in the same way that we're fighting the flesh to serve God. Okay, so we can spot a bully by when they get angry. Uh, you know, basically we've become a threat in some way to them. So what does someone like to do when they feel threatened? They like to make themselves feel bigger, right? Look at verses 2 and 3. Sembalat gets others to join him. He mocks the Jews in front of his other colleagues. It's a power move, right? Uh, because one, it's embarrassing for the Jews, and two, because it gathers support for the bully. None of us like to be bad-mouthed, and certainly not in front of other people, especially when the other people don't really know the situation, right? They'll draw whatever conclusions they may, uh, regardless of what the full context is. And there's a humiliation that comes with that, right, uh, of being sort of put down in front of other people. And now the other person also looks taller in that situation, right, because they're the ones that sort of triumphing over you. And so they look taller because when you're in the seat of mockers, 
You were presumed to have some sort of foothold over them, a form of superiority. Now, that superiority is only a presumed one and is subject to change. Uh, if you haven't thought about it in that way, recognize what's going on with that, okay? Uh, like, if you've ever thought, like, what makes a good comeback a comeback? Or a comeback, a good comeback. You're shifting the power from the mocker, right, back to you, right? That's, that's what's going on there. So they become the humiliated one. Uh, you know, you hear people say something, you know, I've seen people like you before, but I had to pay admission then. You know, it's, it's insulting, right? It sort, of, it sort of takes something away from them. I'm not advocating for comebacks, by the way. I'm just saying, you know, understand what people are doing, right, and what a comeback does, right? They're trying to discourage you by making you smaller. But the thing about having support, right, the fact that he's doing this in front of the other people, is that if you have enough support, it negates any method someone might use to flip the power back over to them, right? So a person with, I mean, even the best comeback falls on deaf ears if you're saying it to a crowd of people who are all opposed to you, right? It just doesn't work in the same way. Uh, you know, we'll talk in a minute about how we're supposed to respond as Christians, which is not to play these power games uh, with people, but instead to recognize who really is in control here. But again, recognizing the tactics that our enemies are using is helpful because it tells us how to deal with them and knowing what you're in for. So a crowd, they may be gathered against you and you may feel even smaller than before. You may feel alone. And once you're isolated, that's when the doubt really starts to creep in. And that's what the church is really helpful in, right? Because the church is a community where you never have to feel alone, right? Uh, you can come here and be a people together. Which leads us to the next tactic that a bully uses. They create internal strife and doubt. They turn you against yourself, and once they've got you alone, or mostly alone, uh, that's when you're going to start to really doubt yourself. So look again at verse 2. They ask rhetorical questions to create that self-doubt. Sambalat calls them pathetic. He says their methods are woefully ineffective. And he reiterates for them just how long this road is going to be. So even if successful, he says, right? It's going to take a long time. Are you sure you can keep it up? Are you sure you have the gifts and skills needed to be able to do this work? I'm reminded of that scene in Lord of the Rings. I know another Lord of the Rings analogy. That's what every pastor has to do. Every sermon has one. Uh, but uh, you did not seriously think that a hobbit could contend with the will of Sauron. There are none who can. Against the power of Mordor, there can be no victory. Uh, so if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, first off, just go watch or read them. Okay, you're better off for it. It's only 12 hours. Uh, <laughs> not a big deal. <laughs> but if you don't know, like hobbits, right, there's these, they're these little tiny human-like creatures, right? And of course, Sauron is the Dark Lord, right, who seemingly has infinite power. So, uh, you know, the guy asking this, right, he's trying to point out this power disparity. Like, what are you doing? It's nonsense. It's foolishness, right? It, it, he's using that power disparity to make the heroes despair. So the tactic of creating self-doubt, it's doing more. It's meant to kill motivation, right? Remember, they feel threatened because of what you're up to. So they need to stop you from getting up to. If your will or your spirit is broken, then they've won. You'll stop trying, right? The threat is over. And they didn't really have to do too much to make it happen. So, you know, talk is cheap, but it can be effective. And that is what the enemy is hoping, right? Uh, when you receive these insults or this, this, um, yeah, this, these doubts, 
That's what it's trying to ultimately do. It's trying to get you to stop trying. So how would Jesus handle a bully? Well, you know, as I said, bullying, it's an old thing, but it has new methods and complexities to it today. We're looking at a specific example today in our passage, but this applies in a more general way too, especially in regards to how Satan tries to discourage the church. Satan doesn't even need to use words, right? He can use all sorts of events in our lives to do the mocking for him. But let's look at Nehemiah's response to Sambalat and Tobiah to get a glimpse of what a Christian should do about this. This is verses 4 through 6. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. Not surprisingly, Nehemiah goes to the Lord. We don't like this response for a number of reasons. We, first, we, we know that likely God is not going to stop the mocking. Uh, that, uh, that that's going to continue. And that makes us want to just take things into our own hands, right? Uh, and we also, we sort of buy into this false notion that prayer is inaction, that it's just sort of talking. But really, prayer is that functional comeback because it recognizes where the power really was all along. It isn't in the hands of the mockers, but it's in God's hands. That's the power in which Nehemiah is relying on. And he seems to recognize that his prayers will not be answered until the task is already over. All of his requests, right, sort of assume that this work will be done and that there will be success. So we also witness then a trust in the Lord, but also an assumption, a faith that they will finish uh, rebuilding despite the opposition they face from their enemies. Some of us might not like the prayer as much because it is basically turning them over to judgment. It sounds kind of harsh to us. But we have to keep in mind with prayers like this that it is dealing with people where they're at and not where they might end up. So if you're an enemy of God's and are actively seeking to hinder him and his work, then you will be dealt with. But this is not to say that they don't have an opportunity to repent and to see, you know, maybe I should join forces with this God that I've been opposed to because, man, clearly he's going to win. Uh, in fact, we'll see later is that same ballot, right, he does notice this. He's got an opportunity. And what does he do? He digs his heels in. He becomes more prideful, more oriented against God and the Israelites. Right? People notice the Lord at work today, hopefully through you. Okay? They notice. And for some, it will bring about repentance, but for others, it will bring about jealousy and anger. That's just the nature of the Lord at work. But let's look again at verse 6. The work continues because the people had the will to keep going. They were undeterred because of their faith. The attempt to kill their spirit and their motivation was unsuccessful. Because they did not dwell on their mockers, they were able to stay focused on the task at hand and make great progress. Right? There's a peace and clarity that comes from trusting the Lord, as, as Charles Schultz said uh, through Linus in, in one of the Peanut, Peanuts comic strips. He said, sound theology has a way of providing comfort. And so how does the bully respond here? Looking at verses 7 through 11. When Senballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails since there is much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, 
They won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. So the bully feels threatened even more. He could repent and yield to the Israelites, but instead he doubles down. Words weren't enough, so now he elevates the threat to the Jews by making plans to destroy them. It's not just hurt feelings anymore, right? It's the risk of physical pain and perhaps even death. So what can we learn about enemies here? Well, surely we must notice why the threats are escalated, right? Why are they escalated? It's because their previous attempts to discourage weren't working, and the work has continued, and they see it working, and they see that this thing's going to get done. So now desperation sets in because they're wanting to prevent that from happening. And so, you know, this is important to keep in mind as we notice the behavior of our enemies. As the enemy grows desperate and as they increase their attempts, it is happening only because they were ineffective in making a difference. And it may be doubly so because you, on the other hand, are thriving. You're not just trying, but it's actually working. The Lord is getting his will done. And so, of course, Nehemiah and the gang, they're unswayed by Sanballat and Tobiah. And the progress continued. Desperate times call for desperate measures. But for a bully or for Satan, this means a doubling down in their wickedness. They go from creating internal persecution, creating that self-doubt, to external persecution. They're, they're wanting to cause physical harm now. And so now Nehemiah and the Israelites are going to have to decide what to do now. Right? We see their response in the next passage. Uh, this is verses 12 through 14. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall, at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. So Nehemiah looks at what's happening, sees the physical attacks taking place. And what does he do? Well, he doesn't cower in fear and shut down operations, right? Uh, instead, uh, what's interesting is that he also doesn't just keep things going the way they were. He adapts, he adjusts, he increases his vigilance. He calls upon others to start guarding uh, their people and the work that they were undertaking. In other words, he's using the resources that God has given them to handle the problem before him. Uh, I say this because some people have this notion, uh, you know, when they're in trouble, they, they call out to God for deliverance. But in their minds, it only counts as deliverance if that deliverance is supernatural, right, uh, in some way. And, you know, yeah, some people, they read this passage and they think that God must directly intervene and, like, strike down Sambalat and Tobiah. And this is basically like arguing that if I get into a car crash but was safe because I was wearing my seatbelt, that it was the seatbelt that saved me and not the Lord's hand in, in the accident, right? Like, that's, that's absurd, of course, because God is the one in control of all of that, right? And, and God is using the seatbelt uh, and making it not fail, for example, right, uh, in that accident. So we're allowed to use common sense and, and our common resources uh, to solve the, the problems in life. Our trust should not be placed in them, ultimately, right? Uh, of course, because that's, that's God's. But God has given them for us to use. And so as we face our enemies, as we try to ward off Satan, it's good and right to utilize some of those protections. Uh, in Nehemiah's case, placing guards strategically. 
For us, it will probably be a bit different. But Nehemiah, he also uses his words to help their cause, right? He stirs the hearts of the people, reminding them of the things that they care about and their purpose for rebuilding the walls. And he has a perfect uh, balance there, too, calling on them to remember the Lord and also the precious things that the Lord has given them, right? The spiritual and the physical matter. They go together. So what do we do with all this? Well, first, we need to remember that there is spiritual warfare taking place. And as Paul teaches in Ephesians 6, we need to prep ourselves for the enemy's attacks. Two ways to do that from this passage today that I see are to trust in the Lord and to encourage each other. On that first part, in trusting the Lord, this is no doubt a very common phrase in the church, and uh, you know, sometimes I think it doesn't mean much to the people hearing it. Right? How do I trust in the Lord when I'm doubting? Right? That's like kind of the whole point of my doubt, expressing the doubt, is that I'm not able to trust. And so the simple answer is to remember the Lord first. That's what Nehemiah calls us to do, to remember the Lord first. I always tell our students, you know, you remember the, st- the, the, the stories in the Bible, okay? You, you dwell on them of how God came through time and time again. His people, uh, I mean, how from in the beginning in Genesis, God sought to be with his people and, and made that happen through Christ. We remember the Hebrews in Egypt, right, being led out, Jericho and the walls falling, Elijah and Naomi and Ruth. We remember the incarnation, how salvation was brought to the world. Remember that the Savior of the world lay dead in a tomb and raised again from the grave because death, try as it may, with all of its might, with its undefeated record on the line, could not hold him. We remember that the enemy has already been defeated and is in retreat. But God knows us just as well as all the figures of the Bible. We can remember the things that he has done for us personally. You faced out. We'll remember all the times that he came through for you in the past. Some of us may feel discouraged in life for whatever reason. It it could be the inability to land a new job or the marriage that is in pieces uh, that only gets worse, it seems, when you try to fix it. It might be the boss at work that doesn't understand you and seems out to get you. Uh, Grief, I mean, goodness, you lose someone and you're just, I don't know how to continue on. You could be discouraged in your own spiritual progress as you continually fail at fighting off the flesh. Will I ever become faithful to Christ, you wonder. Getting personal, of course, right? I'm I'm sad that I am leaving here. That is a discouragement. Some of you have expressed uh, a similar sentiment to me. And so we as a church, we have to trust the Lord. But we need to do so by remembering him. I've been sharing this story a lot with people uh, that I've talked to in the last week. Uh, But, you know, basically before I came here, Diane and I, we, uh, I think we were down to $500 in our account, something like that. Uh, You know, she still needed to become licensed to be a lawyer so she couldn't practice yet. And so finding full-time work, that fell on me. I was the one that was going to have to do this. Uh, And so, you know, ultimately we had to leave uh, my last church, which is only part-time. And, you know, Sacramento, I just, I I loved the kids there and I had felt like I was, just kind of figuring out all of the difficult parts of ministry with an intercultural uh, ministry, you know, parents that don't speak English, that's kind of hard to communicate events and stuff like that, right? Uh, already not one of my giftings, but, uh, but, you know, just sorting out all this stuff and learning the different cultural customs and everything, I feel like I was just starting to get the hang of it. Uh, and so, you know, but we had to leave. I mean, we did what we had to do, and, and the Lord brought us here. 
right? So back then I'm like, ah, you know, why, why do we have to leave? And now we're here, uh, and we did, you know, like I said, we did what we had to do, and we trusted the Lord in that process, and he brought us here. And uh, I'm, he's blessed us richly for doing so. And so for us now, like, we find ourselves in a similar place, not wanting to leave, but also trusting that the Lord has something good for us ahead, for all of us. Our experiences, they continually bolster our faith in God because each past success that, that God has had, right, it gives us confidence. And our God has an eternal track record. And so we have no reason to doubt the future. Our, and God is so cool because it doesn't just extend to us as individuals, but uh, to the, the people of God, right, both globally but also locally. God has something in store for Kishwaukee Church, right? This church is almost 200 years old. Like, think about that. Almost 200 years old, which means just for this church, God has been working for that long. And so Kish's mission, uh, there's nothing changing, right? The Lord is not withdrawing. And so like Nehemiah, I implore us all to remember the Lord, to put your heads down and continue to work together at that great mission. God is with us like he was with the founders of this church almost 200 years ago. And that should be an encouragement to us. And so that's the second part here. That's the other thing that we need to do here to ward off Satan. We have to encourage each other. This is not just sound advice. It is commanded in scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. There should not be a Sunday where you walk into this building and walk out without encouraging another believer, right? Everyone should be encouraging another in the faith. Don't just compliment, you know, the nice hairdo. I mean, it's good to do that as well, but, but it should be something spiritual because they're fighting a spiritual battle out there. Having a nice hairdo, that's great, but that's not going to make them feel better against their enemies out there. They're not going to feel better about their work in Christ. So encourage them in the faith. Notice the gifts of the people in the church and make a comment of it to your brothers and sisters here. It's critical if we're going to survive the incessant uh, assaulting of Satan. So some of you may not know God like the rest of us seem to. You may doubt his goodness or his plan. You may be kind of looking at Nehemiah and thinking, what is this guy doing? And what I would say to you is to look at the community that he has created for himself. Look at the amazing things that he has done through this other people. As, as we talk about the stories in scripture, like, what do you say to that track record? Like, at some point, you have to deal with it. And how can you doubt that? If you know our church, like, you know that we've really gone through uh, quite a bit in the last few years. And yet, we persevere because God is faithful and he continues to love his people and he draws them to himself. Jesus rose from the dead and so we have nothing to fear because death itself has been defeated. Christ is at work and he will deal with our enemies when he comes back. He promises it. The enemy will have no power to stop that work. There's just nothing he can do. And so, let us have the confidence that Miranda from YouTube has, where we bounce back from the rejection and nastiness. But unlike Miranda, let's recognize that we shouldn't have the confidence in ourselves, but we have confidence in Christ, who has done all. Uh, and uh, we have confidence in the Lord, who, because of who he is and what he has done, and not ourselves, we would not be dismayed, because our Lord is unswayed. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for Nehemiah and his example here. 
we all have our battles and tribulations. We go through things in life, uh, things that discourage us, that make us doubt that you're with us, that, that you have a work for us. And yet we can look to Nehemiah and see that that's not the case, that, uh, that uh, our, our, our ancient brothers and sisters have fought that same fight and they've won because they trusted in you. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we face discouragement about work, marriage, family life, spiritual growth, whatever it is. Holy Spirit, that you comfort us, that you would draw yourself near to us, that we would trust in you and trust that that peace and that rest is coming, even if it's not yet. We pray for our enemies, that they would see the error of their ways and repent, Lord, that they would be so in awe of the work that you're doing that they just can't possibly resist it any longer. We pray that the Holy Spirit would just work in their lives, work in their hearts, uh, to tear down uh, the walls in their hearts. As Malachi says, that their hearts of stone, that you would break through that. We pray that, Christ, that you would make it clear to us what our mission is and give us focus on that, that as we face discouragement, that we're able to rise above because we know what we're doing. We know what you have called us to, uh, both individually but also as the church. I just pray that, uh, that you give us clarity in that. And, Father, that as we face this discouragement, that you would renew our trust in you. We are weak, we are feeble in our minds, and it doesn't matter because Christ is bigger than that and that we can cling to you. And so we do ask that you would renew our trust. Uh, give us examples. Remind us of all the things you've done in our lives in the past. And pray all this in your name.